At the end of the sermon this morning, we're going to have a moment of silence, a moment of confession, and to lead us into that moment, we're going to reflect a little bit on the hymn number 229, Beneath the Cross of Jesus. So if you would, take out your hymnal and go ahead and mark that, and I'll refer to it later on in the sermon. 229. So this morning, as you're turning there, we've heard the theme of the shepherd. And when I hear that theme, my mind automatically goes back to the words of Ezekiel the prophet, the one through whom God was calling out the shepherds and indicting the shepherds of Israel, the leaders of the people, these leaders who should have been drawing the people closer to God, but instead they were pushing them away. And in the book of Ezekiel, God says, I'm going to have to take matters into my own hands. These shepherds, these leaders have failed. And I'm going to have to be the shepherd of the people. Fast forward a few centuries. It's Jesus, the Messiah, who uses that language of the shepherd. And the Gospel of John, he announces, I am the good shepherd, really fulfilling those words of God from centuries before. So this morning, with that theme in our minds, we have heard Psalm 23, The Lord is my shepherd. We have sung songs about God leading us, guiding us, protecting us, sustaining us. And really, that theme should strike a chord with what we've been working through this month in this series of lessons called, Are We There Yet? Are We There Yet? It's the journey of faith. It's the journey of the Israelites. And we find ourselves in that journey so easily. It's interesting that in this journey, God selects for himself a leader who happens to be a shepherd. So Moses had spent years, 40 years in Midian, working over and working with a flock of sheep. And I think, and I would like to think, that God was preparing him in those moments when he's out there by himself with the sheep. I would like to think that God was preparing him to be a shepherd of the people. And he turned out to be a magnificent shepherd. He led the people well. It was him, along with his brother Aaron, it was he who confronted Pharaoh and said, let my people go, let God's people go, free them from their slavery. It was Moses the shepherd who stood there at the banks of the Red Sea when the Pharaoh's army was pressing in around the people and the people were frightened. Moses said, fear not. Stand firm, be still, and watch what God does. And that's exactly what God, God ends up doing. He ends up delivering the people in a magnificent way. It is Moses through whom God gives the people rules for the road. So we're thinking about this journey theme. He gives them the, the law, the Ten Commandments, to help shape the character of the people. But this morning, as we think about the journey, well the people take the wrong turn. And we'll see that very clearly here in a moment. In Exodus chapter 32, where we'll be here in a few moments, we see that the shepherd Moses has gone up to the top of the mountain. And he's up there for a very long time with God, which means that the people are down at the base of the mountain. They're by themselves. And the people are getting antsy and when the shepherd is away, the sheep begin to play. 
And it's one of the ugliest moments in the history of Israel. The story of the golden calf. After all the signs, after all the wonders that God had performed, well, this is what the people do whenever they're left by themselves. So let's hear the word of God from Exodus chapter 32, and we'll read the first six verses. Exodus 32. When the people saw that Moses delayed to come down from the mountain, the people gathered around Aaron and said to him, Come, make gods for us who shall go before us. As for this Moses, the man who brought us out of the land of Egypt, we do not know what has become of him. Aaron said to them, Take off the gold rings that are on the ears of your wives, your sons, and your daughters, and bring them to me. So all the people took off the gold rings from their ears and brought them to Aaron. He took the gold from them, formed it in a mold, and cast an image of a calf. And they said, hear this language, These are your gods, O Israel, who brought you up out of the land of Egypt. When Aaron saw this, he built an altar before it. And Aaron made proclamation and said, Tomorrow shall be a festival to the Lord. They rose early the next day and offered burnt offerings and brought sacrifices of well-being. And the people sat down to eat and drink and rose up to revel or rose up to play. May God bless the reading of his word. There's an author named James K.A. Smith that I've mentioned before, and I've also mentioned this book before, and it's, he wrote a wonderful book on worship called You Are What You Love. And we read this a few summers ago in a Bible class, You Are What You Love. I would recommend this book to anyone who wants to dive, dive in deep to think about what goes on in worship when we gather together, what goes on underneath the surface. But in this book, Smith uses a controlling metaphor and he tells a story. He tells a story of a boating accident. And this boating accident takes place shortly after the Titanic in 1914. And another tragedy takes place there in the waters of the Atlantic. And I'm just going to read the way Smith tells it. So hear this story from James Smith. In January of 1914, in thick fog off of the Virginia coast, the steamship Monroe was rammed by the merchant vessel Nantucket and eventually sank. Forty-one sailors lost their lives in the frigid waters of the Atlantic. While it was Osmond Berry, captain of the Nantucket, who was arraigned for charges, in the course of the trial, Captain Edward Johnson of the Monroe was the one who was grilled on the stand for five hours. During cross-examination, it was learned, as the New York Times reported, that Captain Johnson navigated the Monroe with a steering compass that deviated as much as two degrees from the standard magnetic compass. He said the instrument was sufficiently true to run the ship, and that it was the custom of masters in the coastwise trade to use such compasses. 
His steering compass had never been adjusted in the one year he was master of the Monroe. The faulty compass that seemed adequate for navigation eventually proved otherwise. A faulty compass. I wonder how many of us would feel comfortable boarding a ship or bringing it to this century. Boarding a plane where the captain said, Our navigational instruments are sufficiently true. There's a little wiggle room. There's a little give and take with our instruments, but it should should get us there in a, a nick of time. I doubt very many of us would feel comfortable getting on that plane. Two degrees off course in the short run makes little difference, but over a great distance, two degrees can be tragic. A faulty compass can lead to a great crash, which is really what Exodus chapter 32 is all about and really what shepherding is all about. We think about the Israelites. The Israelites are very much like sheep. They need guidance. They need some navigation. They need a compass. They need a direction in life. They have been chosen by God, but they don't really know this God. This is very new in their relationship and And the book of Exodus really is God providing them with direction. God providing them with a compass. He does this in a literal sense. When the Israelites are out in the desert, in the wilderness, there's the cloud by the day and the pillar of fire by night where God literally provides direction for the people to follow. A a compass, if you will. But there's also spiritual direction. And we talked about this last week. Whenever the Israelites receive those rules for the road, the Ten Commandments, God is giving them a way to to live in a relationship with Him and with one another. But just by way of review, let's hear those first three commandments again. You shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make idols for yourselves. You shall not take the Lord's name in vain. Well, when we think about that, essentially this is God saying to the Israelites, do you want an orientation in life? Do you want direction and purpose and meaning in life? Then fix the needle of your compass to me and me alone. No one else. If you do this, I am your true north. And you will get where you need to go. Which makes the events of Exodus chapter 32, that much more tragic. When Moses leaves, when he is delayed from coming down the mountain, instead of the people waiting patiently for the shepherd to return, what do they do? They, they go off on their own. They pull out their own compass, and as it turns out, their compass is off a couple of degrees. And it's not like their compass is pointed in the wrong, completely wrong direction. They don't reject God completely. They don't try to replace God. No, it's much worse. They try to mix and match the ways of God with the invisible, with the visible gods that they see before them. They change the story. No longer is it the Lord who led them out of Egypt. It's these gods that they just made. These gods who led them out of the land of Egypt. Notice the language that that Aaron uses in talking about the festival that's upcoming in verse 5. He says, tomorrow shall be a festival to, to what? 
The golden calf? No. Tomorrow's going to be a festival to the Lord. It is a strange mix here of God's and the way of God, the only God. The needle has turned a couple of degrees off north, and there needs to be some adjustments made. There needs to be some recalculations. The sheep are looking for someone to follow or something to follow. They're looking for something visible, something tangible. And so they choose the faulty compass, and they begin to worship, and their worship turns to play a a grand drinking party, and if you've ever watched the Ten Commandments movie, they do a good job of, of showing this revelry there at the base of a mountain. This is where a faulty compass leads. And they're about to experience a great crash. Well, as we overhear this story this morning, a haunting question comes to the forefront. Are we using a faulty compass in our lives? Is the needle pointed in the right direction, or is it off a couple of degrees? And this is a difficult question because, well, it's difficult to detect if we're using a faulty compass or not. Usually we don't see it until it is too late. We go through life. We think that we're doing what is right. We attend our church services. We, we get involved in church ministry. We get involved in a lot of different things, even good things. And we can name them good things that come across our way. The job promotion, the new relationship, maybe the new sports league, the new social media page, maybe for some of you children, the new game, the new video game, whatever it may be. These things are not bad in and of themselves, except... When they start to make demands of us. Except when they start to occupy a larger place in our hearts and draw our gaze away from God. I love this quote from the ancient theologian Augustine. This is what he says. He says, God wants to give us something. God wants to give us something, but He cannot because our hands are full. And He has no place to put it. And there are moments in our lives when we, our hands are too full because of the things we put in our hands. Even good things. And it's hard to notice that we are drifting away from God until, until that moment when we wake up and we look out and see that we are about to crash. And we ask ourselves, how in the world did this happen? It's a faulty compass. So this morning, I think we would be wise to take a few moments to do a bit of a spiritual checkup because if our needle is pointed the right way, if our lives are truly aligned with God and His will, then we are going to produce fruit in the kingdom. We are going to, to be fruit-bearing, the fruit of the Spirit. We're going to take on the characteristics of Jesus Himself. That is what is promised to us. But what if we're not? Well, it might be time to look at our compass. Here are a few questions. So how are we doing with our anger? Our temper? How are we doing with the lust of the flesh? The lust of our eyes? 
How are we doing with controlling our tongue, our words, our Facebook posts, Instagram, whatever that may be? How are we doing with our acts of love and service, forgiveness? How are we doing with how we spend our time? How are we doing with how we spend our finances? How are we doing with our prayer lives, our Bible study, our worry? Let's think about these for a moment. Is there an area of your life that needs some adjustment? I bring these questions out as a way for us to try to step outside of ourselves, and that's hard to do. And I think we probably need another pair of eyes. We need a truth teller who knows us well to help us with our spiritual health because I know from my own experience, self-deception is very powerful when we can let ourselves off the hook. We might be thinking, well, we're at the base of the mountain waiting patiently for Moses to come down, but in reality, we have joined in with revelry. We don't even realize it. We're far down the track, and we're about to head to a crash because that's where the faulty compass leads. How is our compass this morning? Have we made the adjustments? I think of all the stories in Exodus, I I find the events of Exodus 32 and the story of the golden calf to be the most accessible because in many ways the story of the Israelites there at the base of the mountain worshiping there around the golden calf, that is the story of humanity. And I'm sure most of us would like to think if we were to put ourselves in this story that we would be Moses up on the mountain or we would be Joshua waiting for Moses, but in reality... The truth is that so often we find ourselves there at the base of the mountain, caught up in who knows what, without even realizing it until it's too late. In Exodus 32 through 34, there's a great crash, an incredible crash that the people experienced. They had followed their faulty compass to where it has led them. They have reveled, they have partied, they have worshipped this false god. They have fixed their gaze away from true north. Two degrees have led them to a different place, and it was a terrible, terrible price that they had to pay. In shades of what we find in Genesis with the story of the flood, God has a conversation with Moses there on the mountain, and essentially he says, Moses, do you hear that noise down there? I'm going to wipe those people out. I'm going to start over with you. You're going to be the new Abraham. I'm not going to mess with them anymore. I gave them my heart. I gave them the rules. I rescued them, and look what they're doing. And you have this incredible, incredible exchange between Moses and God where Moses intercedes for the people, and God God relents, but there's still a price to pay. There is pain that the, the people experience when Moses comes down the mountain. There are consequences, there are casualties. There are always consequences for following a faulty compass. There are always consequences for sin, always. 
but all is not lost in this tragedy. And God miraculously, incredibly, sticks with the people. He doesn't abandon them, but He continues to reveal His character to them. He continues to give them their bearings. He continues to help them adjust the needle to true north, to Himself. We saw this in the Ten Commandments, but we see this in a powerful way in Exodus 34, verses 5 through 7. If you would turn there. I gave a memory device a few years ago to, uh, to help remember this scripture. This is one of those, those big scriptures that's important to remember. And I would like to take credit for this little memory device, but I stole it. I stole it from a man named Harold Shank, who's an Old Testament professor. But I told him I stole it from him, so it's okay. Exodus 34, verses 5 through 7. I'll give you that memory device again here in a moment. But this is one of the most important passages in all of Scripture. Even after the people rebelled, after they, they fled away from God, after the consequences of their sin plays out, God says this, The Lord descended in the cloud and stood with him there, with Moses, and proclaimed the name, The Lord, The Lord. The Lord passed before him and proclaimed. So here's, here's the description. The Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for the thousandth generation, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, yet by no means clearing the guilty, but visiting the iniquity of the parents upon the children and the children's children to the third and fourth generation. And that last part there, I believe to be the generational consequences of sin, not necessarily the guilt, but the generational consequences that we, we see. And I, I pray that my children are protected from the consequences of my own sin. But hear that description once more. The Lord, gracious, merciful, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love. Well, here's a way to remember this description. If you would, on the back of your order of worship, number 1 through 10. Number 1 through 10. And each one of these numbers represents a way to help remember this passage in particular. I found it to be helpful. It helps me remember it. So Exodus 34 5 through 7. So number one, this is the number one most important statement about God. Certainly in the Old Testament, but maybe even all of Scripture. It's the number one most important statement about God. Number two, it's found in the second book of the Bible, Exodus. Three and four, it's found in chapter 34. 5, 6, and 7. It's found in verses 5, 6, and 7. 8. This particular description of God is cited eight times in the Old Testament. Eight times. 9. There are nine qualities of God in this description. And number 10. This really serves as the basis 
for the Ten Commandments. And we talked a little bit about this last week, that the Ten Commandments flow out of the story of God's grace and out of God's character. The, the Ten Commandments form the basis, or this description forms the basis of the Ten Commandments. This is who God is. This is God providing a compass, the true north, saying this is where your compass needs to point to this character, this, this heart of mine, the gracious and merciful God. And we see this most clearly in God's Son, Jesus of Nazareth. We see the very character of God lived out, these descriptions of, of God lived out in the man, Jesus Christ. And God continues to give us different things for us to help adjust our, our compass needle to the, the true north, the only way to find life in this world. One of the ways is our weekly rhythm of worship. When we gather together with our brothers and sisters in Christ, it helps bring us to the center. Another thing is the table, which is why we gather here on Sunday mornings. Yeah, there's the sermon, there are the, the songs, there are the prayers, but really we gather for this moment, the reminder of what God did at the cross through Jesus Christ. There are moments when we gather together with our brothers and sisters and we open up God's word. These are all ways that we adjust and find our bearings in this world. But for now, we're going to have a moment of confession as another way to help us find our bearings. I mentioned this hymn a while ago, and I would invite you to look at these words. I'm not going to sing it. But I'm going to talk about this hymn for a moment, and then we'll have a time of prayer and a time of silence to lift up our sins before God. And then we're going to say together Psalm 32, a confessional psalm. And then I'll offer an invitation. So, Beneath the cross of Jesus is a story, and I would invite you to, to have this open, even during the Lord's Supper, if you would like to think about these words. It's the story of, in verse 1, of us, really the story of humanity. We are out in the wilderness, the heat is bearing down upon us, and all we're looking for is some type of respite. We're looking for some type of shade, we're looking for a rock. That's what verse 1 is all about. Verse 2 is that same theme, except we're looking for God's presence. And so there's that, that reference to Jacob's dream. And back in Genesis, when he dreams of the stairway to heaven, when God is very near to him, that's what we desire as well. In verse 3, we come to the cross. But we come to the cross and what we recognize with the man hanging there, we recognize our utter, utter sinfulness. We are convicted of our sins. But then in verse 4, we stand in the shadow of the cross and we realize that in the wilderness, that shadow is what we've been looking for this whole time. That yes, the cross convicts us, it convicts us of our sins, and yet it is also the instrument through which God rescues us and gives us life and restores us to the way the people we need to be it is an incredible journey in this song and i would encourage you as we enter into this time of confession to think about the cross as a way of convicting us but also releasing us and transforming us and so let's enter into a time of prayer which will include a time of silence where we confess our sins before the lord
Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we come before you as people who would like to think of ourselves as spiritual giants, but we know the reality. We would like to think that we are up on the mountain like Moses, drawing near to you at every moment. And yet we realize that so often we are at the base of the mountain and that the one whom we are worshiping is not you. We confess that we have given our affection and our attention on things that are not of what you would have us do and have us be. We bring before you this morning the golden calves in our lives. You know them. You know them better than we know them. We pray that you would, in this time of silence, expose these idols of our hearts. And in this time of confession, may we draw near to you and fix our gaze on the author of our salvation. Hear our prayers. And now, let us say together in a read in response, Psalm 32. And I'll read the leader part, and then like we did with Psalm 23, we'll have the congregation read the other part. Blessed is the one whose transgressions are forgiven, whose sins are covered, Blessed is the one whose sin the Lord does not count against them, and in whose spirit is no deceit. When I kept silent, my bones wasted away through my groaning all day long. Your hand was heavy on me. My strength was sapped as in the heat of summer. Then I acknowledged my sin to you and did not cover up my iniquity. I said, I will confess my transgressions to the Lord, and you forgave the guilt of my sin. Therefore, let all the faithful pray to you while you may be found. Surely the rising of the mighty waters will not reach them. You are my hiding place. You will protect me from trouble and surround me with the songs of deliverance. God, through Jesus Christ, has offered us forgiveness of sins. There's a moment in with the, the story of the Monroe and the Nantucket in, the mo- in this hearing where the captain was accused of having a faulty compass. And after this hearing, after hours and hours of this back and forth between the judge and the courtroom scene, the two captains found each other in the corridor right outside of this, this scene. And they gave each other an embrace. And they wept bitterly. That is the scene where the faulty compass leads. But it's also in that moment when we confess our sins to God, when we are broken because of our sins, where God meets us. And the good news of Jesus Christ is that we have a good shepherd who seeks out the lost. We have the good shepherd who binds up the wounds of the injured. You come here this morning having lost your way. You come here this morning wounded from your own sin or maybe from the sin of others. May you find peace and rest and restoration in the only one who can provide it, the Good Shepherd, our Lord Jesus Christ, 
crucified and risen. The tomb is empty. New life can be found in Him and Him alone. If you'd like to respond to that good news, we're going to invite you to come. If you need the prayers of your brothers and sisters in Christ for whatever situation, perhaps you recognize that you've been using a faulty compass and you need the help of your brothers and sisters to help you make that adjustment, you can come here in a public way. We will pray over you. Or if you want a more private setting after our assembly, we will have some shepherds in the chapel if you would like to pray privately. If you have come to faith and you recognize that the answer to life's problems is Jesus and you want to be baptized, we can arrange for that as well. If you've been immersed and you would like to become a member and join us, join with what God is doing among us, now is the time to come as we stand and as we sing.